This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On this bonus episode of the Short Code, we hear from Dr. John Ratchet. Dr. Ratchet is an anesthesiologist of 17 years who reached out to us at Iowa because he'd long felt a wedge being driven between doctors and their patients. He said that wedge, made of mouse clicks, political meddling, insurance middlemen, patient satisfaction surveys, and annoying electronic health records, was disconnecting physicians from their purpose. And that missing sense of purpose he feared was leading them to burn out. It's contributing to a frightening problem, physician suicide. Modern medicine, he said, is in peril. Among the solutions he feels is to encourage physicians and students to take inventory of their most memorable patient stories. He argues that this will return them to that lost connection to their work. This talk, given to our first and second year medical students, and the first he'd given on the topic, is the beginning of his mission to spread that idea. Dr. Steve Ortiz had an unorthodox path to becoming a physician. Growing up in Eugene, Oregon, he was regarded as a bright student and a star athlete. Shortly after high school graduation, he began a 10-year career as a sprinkler fitter while working construction on the side. One day on the job, he stepped off a curb and tore his meniscus, leading to surgery and a subsequent calling into a completely new profession. At age 28, he went back to school and earned a chemistry degree from Fullerton Community College and went on to finish medical school at Stanford. After completing both an orthopedic surgery residency in New York and a spine fellowship in Minnesota, he was thrilled with his new career path. However, it was not without personal sacrifice. Being an older resident and fellow meant that his training took time away from his wife and children. The strain of studies, long hours at the hospital, and constant clinical demands ultimately led to a divorce. Dr. Ortiz did whatever he could to see his kids as often as possible. Upon completing his fellowship, he began a career in Florida, described by classmates and colleagues as thoughtful, kind, self-sacrificing, and committed to his patients. Being a spine surgeon was the perfect fit. He was thrilled to have a job that allowed him to serve others by applying his medical training and knowledge to solve patients' problems. Dr. Ortiz built a strong practice within the healthcare system. He was highly recommended, achieved fantastic outcomes, and had a stellar work reputation amongst his colleagues and patients. He was truly a dedicated doctor, even returning home early from a family vacation to attend to a patient who had been hospitalized following surgery. He was known for doing what was necessary to achieve the desired results. One day while interviewing a patient in the clinic, he learned that she was in a lot of pain after hitting a pothole in the parking lot. Dr. Ortiz knew the exact pothole that she was talking about, having hit it himself several months earlier. He'd even asked the facilities manager to have it repaired, as such a jarring motion was especially problematic for patients with spine conditions. A whole month went by after two meetings, a few follow-up emails, and several patient complaints. The pothole remained. Being the pragmatic person he was in refusing to allow the bureaucratic system to fail his patients, Dr. Ortiz finally just purchased some gravel in concrete mix and repaired the pothole himself. He continued to enjoy a robust practice even though the production targets and the administration's focus on RVUs and the nudging to produce maximal billing started to bother him. He seemed more often than not that clinical, non-clinical functions demanded most of his time. Too often he was told of new mandates without having the opportunity to give his input. Generally, Dr. Ortiz only operated when he found a clinical indication, but this led to less operative procedures than the administration had targeted. His colleagues merely suggested, go with the flow, which greatly bothered Dr. Ortiz. It wasn't how he was trained, and it went against his principles. 
As a result, his patient referrals started to decrease, leading to a fall in his productivity. Additionally, he was being asked to follow new protocols to complete insurance pre-approvals and to make sure that he entered all the data for collecting outcomes in the EHR. His frustration with work continued to mount and most days became a grind and a burden. Dr. Ortiz felt he was merely a line worker in a factory with very little autonomy. He began to drift away from friends and family. On February 8, 2017, after a full OR schedule and seeing a few patients in clinic, he made rounds on the floor. He visited most, assuring they were doing well, chatted with a few nurses, discussing a couple of loose ends. He wrote orders and some progress notes. He even went to his office and wrote the last few thank you cards. Then a bit past 2 a.m., Dr. Ortiz got in his pickup truck in the hospital parking lot and shot himself in the chest. Physician suicide is an absolute peril in this country, and we can no longer afford to ignore it. We have a crisis, and we need to start talking about it. The numbers are staggering. 50% of medical students experience symptoms of burnout. 27 report episodes of depression. 11% suicidal ideation. For residents, it's 28% report major depression. 23 report suicidal ideations. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 24 to 34 year olds. Accidents is the number one. Physician assistance, there is no good data yet. We presume the data will be similar as they are subjected to similar environmental factors. For physicians, 39% report major depression. We die by suicide at two times the general population. We lose more than one physician a day to suicide. Of the physicians that die, 20 to 40% times likely to have a benzodiazepine in their system at the time of their death. And there is a strong connection between personal stress, which is depression, and professional stress, which is burnout. Male anesthesiologists are at the highest risk of all specialties. More than a million patients lose their doctor to suicide each year. I suppose now would be a good time to tell you that I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, and obviously, we're going to be discussing some pretty heavy topics tonight. I am not an expert. I didn't intend to do this work. I kind of stumbled upon it, but here I am. There's a story that needs to be told, and I want to help tell it. I should also let you know to try and kind of break the ice, because that's normally the way I approach this. That if you happen to fall asleep while I'm talking to you, it's not a big deal. As an anesthesiologist, that happens to me every day. <laughs> and they say to be less nervous, you should imagine your audience naked. So actually, I'm not. I'm just imagining you in gowns with your back untied. There is a working theory behind suicide. Thomas Joyner produced this. He's a professor at Florida State University and an expert when it comes to suicide. And there are three different elements that coalesce that if they interact, tend to lead to suicide. One is thwarted or thwarted belongingness, feeling the sense of being disconnected. Another is perceived burdenness or a burden to your family, to your friends, to your teammates. The other one is a reduced fear of pain or death. And as med students, residents, and physicians, and PAs, we are around death a lot. I don't want to say you ever get used to it, but you certainly diminish your sensitivity to it. When those three elements come together in play, you get over the last major hurdle most patients feel like they needed to get over in order to commit suicide. We know this from people who survived. And that is an overwhelming feeling of being disconnected, being unmoored from any purpose or value in continuing to live. I think we're predisposed to this. 
And I think that's why we're seeing a higher rate among physicians and clinicians than we see in the general population. It's nurture versus nature. Many of us have a type A personality. We're altruistic. We strive for perfection. And we sacrifice self. Our training also plays a role. It's often shame-based. It has intimidation and isolation. You're expected to be self-sufficient. You deny self-care. We don't have conferences for doing a good job. We have M&M conferences. You donate the best years of your life. And you're always told not to get emotionally involved. And work does it to us, whether it's an electronic health record or mouse clicks, protocols, politics, production pressure, government regulations, the threat of lawsuits, the debt that we occur to do this. Modern medicine is broken, and it's breaking us. It leads us oftentimes to a sense of stress and a loss of joy and purpose and value and respect. It leads to anxiety and depression. And it often leads us to self-medicate because we don't seek professional help. So we use alcohol, benzodiazepines, opioids. We have enormous percentages of depression. And we tend to treat ourselves with anti-depression drugs and anti-anxiety drugs. It leaves us feeling vulnerable and shameful and often totally disconnected. Brene Brown has done some amazing work explaining vulnerability. For many, vulnerability leads to guilt, then shame, then isolation, and finally disconnection. Our medical training often leads to overwhelming levels of vulnerability. Raise your hand if you've ever felt vulnerable while you've been trained or in your process of being training. You know, you're being pimped on rounds in front of your classmates. The warm wash of shame washes over you, and you're asked to recall a specific step in sodium regulation in the kidney. It makes you feel adequate at best if you come up with the answer, and devastated if you don't. I mean, come on, even nephrologists don't know how the kidneys work. But there is a profound myth that vulnerability equals weakness. Anyone feel that way? That's a dangerous myth. It's not true. And oftentimes, we struggle between shame and guilt. Our medical training is often riddled with shame. We're expected to be perfect, but we're not. You forget something. You harm a patient. You feel really guilty. But when guilt equals shame, it's really, really destructive. There is a big difference. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. We have got to get over this. Because if we can't get over our shame, and we can't show love and forgiveness and empathy to ourselves, we certainly can't show it to anybody else. When we care for patients, we serve them when they're at their most vulnerable and in their most intimate moments. But I think what's vital is for us to remember that these moments matter to them, but they also matter to us. I think that's where we get joy and purpose and happiness in the work that we do. We as humans are hardwired for connection, deep, meaningful connection. It gives purpose and meaning to our lives. As I kind of dove into this, I ended up getting into this because I began to wonder whether I was suffering from burnout myself and some of my colleagues. And in the process of kind of digging into this, I learned a lot more about moral injury and ultimately physician suicide. And it startled me, to be honest with you. Um, but sometimes life asks you to do things that you weren't prepared to do. You're just called to do it. And so you show up and you try and do it. And that's what I'm trying to do. But in the process of doing that, I realized that I'm not alone, that we all feel this way at times. And this quote 
from Teddy Roosevelt really kind of stuck with me, and I'm going to read it to you. Because I think it's poignant, especially when you're going through medical training. Because there are many days when you get done with your training, and you don't feel great about yourself. And you feel like you're the only one who's really struggling, and that's not true. So it is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again. Because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails daring greatly. So how do we pivot from this? You gotta have a life outside of training and work. Time away matters. Don't give up the things that make you happy. Choose collaboration over competition. Plan for failure. It's going to happen. Know how to deal with the consequences. Share it with each other. Support each other and then move on. Ask for help when you need it. Provide the resources. The University of Iowa is way ahead of most of the country in doing this, you guys. You have amazing resources and they put a lot of effort into this. You guys are really lucky. Use a healthy personal operating system. Sleep matters. Take it from an anesthesiologist. So does food, so does exercise, so does stress reduction. And share your stories. One thing that has really helped me over the last couple of years as I've been working through some of this stuff with my colleagues is to focus on patient stories, how they've affected me, how they affect my colleagues. You know, we don't often get to choose what stories we get pulled into. They pull us into them. But we do get to choose how we're going to be affected by them. And they're going to affect us. Good, bad, indifferent. We have funny stories and sad stories and trying stories. Stories that make us feel great. Stories that really perplex us. But I think it's those patient stories that are going to help us reconnect to the purpose and joy of what we do into the mystery of the work that we have in front of us. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share a couple of stories with you now. Jennifer is 17. In May, she found out she was pregnant. Her and her boyfriend were surprised when they heard the news. But they are now happy and eager for the baby's arrival. She's now 37 weeks pregnant, and so far her pregnancy has been proceeding as expected. However, today she complained of a headache. She went to see her obstetrician, but she was at the hospital and the clinic had a full schedule. After waiting an hour, she was told it would resolve, so she went home. Two hours later, she decided to go to the emergency department as her headache continued, and now the movie she was watching with her boyfriend was blurry. When she arrived, she seemed tired. She vomited and became dizzy and lightheaded. A head CT scan was ordered, and she was taken to radiology. The radiology tech called the radiologist as soon as she saw the images. The CT revealed a massive intracranial hemorrhage with cerebral edema and significant midline shift. The physician in the emergency department quickly explained the clinical scenario to Jennifer and her boyfriend. The decision was made to sedate her, intubate her, and airlift her to Abbott Northwestern Hospital. When Jennifer arrived, the emergency department physician notified the perinatologist, neurosurgeon, and me. The neurosurgeon quickly conducted a cursory neuro exam. She had non-reactive pupils bilaterally. She was non-responsive to noxious stimuli. He determined she was not a candidate for emergency decompressive craniotomy. I confirmed endotracheal tube placement, started a second IV, and placed an arterial line. According to the fetal monitoring strip, the baby appeared stable. However, given the CT findings, we knew the baby's condition would likely deteriorate. We decided to proceed to the OR for an emergency cesarean delivery. En route to the OR, Jennifer's heart rate started to slow and her blood pressure began to drop. 
She was transferred to the operating table. She was connected to the ventilator and ventilated with a high concentration of inhaled anesthetic. Her abdomen was splashed with betadine. I worked quickly to stabilize Jennifer's condition. I administered epinephrine, mannitol, Lasix. I initiated hyperventilation and elevated the head of the bed. I was gravely concerned that her brain may herniate. The perinatologist made two passes with a scalpel, then a third through the wall of the uterus. 41 seconds later, a healthy six pound, four ounce baby was born by a cesarean delivery. Jennifer's incision was closed and her dressings were applied. Her new baby was wrapped and placed next to her for a moment before being transported to the newborn nursery. Jennifer remained intubated and sedated. Her blood pressure and heart rate were within normal limits and stable. Prior to transporting Jennifer to the ICU, I accompanied the neurosurgeon to speak to her family in a small waiting room in the OR. We met Jennifer's mother, father, and boyfriend. They were unaware of the events unfolding. We explained to them that Jennifer had a significant and non-survivable intracranial hemorrhage. I informed them that she was sedated, that we were using medications to keep her blood pressure and her heart rate stable, and that she had a breathing tube in place and we were breathing for her. We transported her to the ICU. They joined us at her side. Over the next 48 hours, Jennifer remained in the ICU. She was on a ventilator and required some vasopressors. Her parents, boyfriend, and newborn were at her side. She continued to receive nursing care and scheduled neurologic exams. Her neurologic status did not improve and a cerebral angiogram demonstrated loss of cerebral blood flow. After family and friends had gathered to say goodbye, she was declared brain dead. That night, Jennifer was transported to OR10. Monitors were placed and general anesthesia was induced. Transplant teams harvested Jennifer's eyes, heart, lungs, liver, pancreas, kidneys, and small intestines. Eight patients received life-saving organ transplants. Three days later on a cold afternoon, I attended Jennifer's funeral at a small church. It is the only patient's funeral I have ever attended. At that time, my wife was pregnant with our third child. This is a story that reminds me of the tension in medicine that exists between despair and hope. It is a story about bringing our very best selves to our work in the face of excruciating loss. But it is also a story about me. It is an acknowledgement that patient stories have shaped whom I have become. So often we are expected to execute our duties without emotion, but for me, that is unrealistic. At some point, we have to have the courage to be vulnerable and to gracefully show our humanity to both our patients and ourselves. I believe it is important to understand how patient stories shape our personal narrative, because that understanding provides us the deeper path to a more meaningful connection to our work and to one another. We all have cases that remind us why we do what we do. This is one of mine. About six months after that occurred, <clears throat> I was going to see a patient in a typical kind of pre-op area. And I walked in to say hello to the patient. And the patient was surrounded by a bunch of family members. He was a 55-year-old guy who was going to have an aneurysm clipping done. And when I went into the room to um, say hello to the patient, family members kind of turned. And I was trying to get around the table to do an exam on the patient. This woman whose back was turned to me turned and looked at me and I looked at her and we had that moment where we saw each other's faces and we knew each other but we couldn't recall how. It was her mother. She had come back to the hospital because they did the cerebral angiogram to prove uh, that she did not have cerebral blood flow anymore. They discovered that she had aneurysms and that's what burst in her head which is what caused the intracranial bleeding. There's a genetic component of that so other family members may have those same type of aneurysms. So all first-degree relatives of hers got head CT scans, and this guy was found to have one of them, and he was getting it clipped before it burst. 
and I never thought I'd see her again. Um, we only saw each other briefly at the funeral, and I remember my feeling at the funeral was I felt like a voyeur, like I, I really wasn't supposed to be here. Like I had crossed a boundary that as physicians we're not supposed to do. You know, I had stepped off the stage as an actor into the audience. Um, but I ran into the mom and the dad. I went with a nurse practitioner that got to know this family really well as she kind of negotiated them through the three days of the loss and then ultimately donating their daughter's organs. And she really wanted to go and she asked me to go with and I thought, you know, I'll do this because I think it's probably going to be a good idea for me. But like I said, I felt like a voyeur until I ran into the parents. And they were so appreciative that we were there. I think it mattered to them because those three days at that moment were the most important three days in that patient's life. And to have people that were there with them during that, I think, mattered. But what I realized afterwards is how much it mattered to me as a doctor. Because I saw that I only saw her as a patient. But when I went to her funeral, she was no longer a patient. She was a sister, a niece, a homecoming date, a classmate. And I saw this whole other side to her, as opposed to just the woman that I took care of that had a breathing tube in and was in the ICU. So you never know how these stories will kind of evolve and come back. But I remember saying to the mom, the only thing that came out of my mouth was, I never thought I'd see you again. And she said, I never thought I'd come to this hospital again. But then she said something to me that was profound. She said, but there is no other hospital in the world I'd go to, because I know the care that my daughter got, even despite her outcome, was meaningful. I'll share one other story with you, and then I'll conclude, and we can either answer questions or have a discussion, or you guys can go find some food. Um, interestingly, it comes from OB. I work at a hospital that is basically a level one trauma hospital for OB. Thank God we don't do level one trauma. We've already got three other hospitals that get to do that. But we get to take care of all the OB patients that you know, shouldn't have gotten pregnant because they've got severe cardiac disease, or babies are in really deep trouble, or moms are in bad shape. And in a typical fashion, I get a call on a phone that I wear so they can get a hold of me right away. And the call is, we're going back to OR3 for a crash C-section. So much like my job as an anesthesiologist, sometimes I feel like it's a wave that goes on to shore and then grabs me and drags me out to sea with everybody else, and we've got to figure out what to do. So I went cruising back into the room. I find a patient laying on an operating table and them opening up to do a crash C-section really fast. The OB finds me and says, heart tone's been down significantly. We came running back to the room. They put a Doppler back on. Heart tones for the baby came up, and they looked OK. So we paused, took a deep breath, and said, all right, we're going to proceed with an emergency C-section, but we can slow down. Instead of doing this in two minutes, we're going to try and do it in eight. We continue to monitor the baby. If anything changes, we're going to accelerate what we're doing. But at that point, she says, you have time to do a spinal. So I sit the patient up quick, I pop a spinal, and we lay the patient back down. They start prepping the patient. I start to ask the patient just you know, the cursory things that I need to know to take care of somebody. Do you have any allergies to medicines? You've been hospitalized for any reason. Do you have any trouble with your heart or lungs? Beyond that, I can kind of wing it. I'll look in her airway, make sure I can intubate her if I needed to. We're good to go. Baby continues to look good. We prep the baby, the mother's belly, get the drapes on and everything else. Proceed with a C-section methodically, quickly. That baby is born about nine minutes after he went into that room. And I'll never forget that baby coming out. She was as blue as my scrubs. Resuscitation bassinet is right to my left. Baby goes in there, and they start working on the baby immediately. They intubate the baby, start giving positive pressure ventilation. Baby doesn't get any better. The NICU team is across the hall delivering twins. We immediately tell them to come into the room. They provide <clears throat> a full resuscitation. Keep in mind, this patient is wide awake, and the husband's right next to her, and the father of this baby. Five feet from them, they're doing a full cardiac resuscitation on their new baby. They get through one round of it, administer drugs, do everything else. Baby doesn't get any better. The physician who's running the code comes over and informs them, we're going to do one more round, but after that, we don't think there's anything we can do. They do another round. 
and they call the code. And it's not till afterwards that I learned that this is their first baby. We get done with that. The baby remains in the room because we've learned that when you're going through these things, two things are vital. One, if family members want to be there when the code is going on, it's better for them then and after if they got to witness everything. Number two, there's no sense in taking that baby away from them. They wanted to hold her and grieve with her right then and there. But that was the most difficult C-section I've ever been in, as you can imagine. Because you're trying to continue to do your work, and you know you're witnessing an extraordinarily intimate moment that you really shouldn't be involved with, but you can't abandon it. Afterwards, we did a, uh, a quick kind of debrief, because we want to know what do we think went wrong. The first hemoglobin came back for that baby was 2.3. I think at that point we kind of knew what would probably happen. That was a placental abruption that occurred in the final few minutes of that baby's life, right before we made the incision in the uterus and that baby bled to death in utero. Uh, the OB was devastated. She didn't do another C-section for several months. She asked to have help when she started doing them again. But the story continues. Later, that patient got pregnant again, but she had left that OB because she didn't want anything to do with that OB or that hospital or anything. Five months into that pregnancy, she contacted that other OB and said, I want to come back to you. I'm pregnant again. She knew she was going to have a repeat C-section, and she asked, can you please, if possible, reassemble the entire team that was there that day? So myself, the CRNA, the scrub nurse, the OB nurse, the OR nurse, the surgeon, and the surgeon's assistant was all in that room. And I think that family needed to go back through that process and to walk through that door again for themselves. But what I realized is that family gave us an incredible gift. Because until that moment of being able to take care of that family one more time, all I was left with was the first part of that story, which was tragic. But not all stories are tragic. Some stories continue. That story continued. They had a healthy baby. This family went on to have two more babies, and they all delivered at the hospital with the same team back together again. I have two stickers that I put on the inside of my locker. This mom and the other mom that we lost. I see them at the beginning of the day, and I see them at the end of the day. And despite that they're death stories, if you will, they provide life to the work I do and remind me why I'm doing what I'm doing. Which often helps me tolerate, I think, um, the crap that we got to put up with, right? Mouse clicks. I love Epic and I hate Epic. It takes nine mouse clicks to put in pre-op orders for me. That's ridiculous. I mean, if Amazon made it that way, they wouldn't sell anything. But it is what it is, and we're stuck with a bunch of this stuff, but it's those moments that matter. I will tell you, if I've ever had a good day at work, two things invariably happened. I had a very good patient interaction, I had a very good interaction with my colleagues. And I think it's those things that I tend to hang on to and tend to focus on each and every day, which helps me do my job, I think, well and better than I otherwise would. So I'm gonna leave you with one last thought. I believe there's a better way, and I believe if we're going to change the arc of the narrative regarding clinician suicide, and if we're going to find our way back to the joy and purpose of our work, we're going to have to reconnect with our patients and with one another, and we're going to have to do it with our collective humanity. That's all I have. Thank you for listening. I am happy to have a discussion quickly or answer some questions or stick around afterwards. If anyone's thinking about anesthesia, don't worry, it's not always terrifying. Can you stop the recording? Sure, yeah. Yeah, please. I'll break in here to say that the audience wasn't mic'd, so it's impossible to hear the questions they asked. But this first question was from a student who wanted to know how Dr. Mrachik kept himself grounded in the face of the sorts of 
traumatic events that uh, he described? It's a great question. <clears throat> um, and I'm not going to sit in front of you like I'm an expert. I do this well. But I will say this. There is purpose behind how I process stuff. I was an English major. In the eyes of the English department, I'm a total failure. I went to medical school. But I like to write. Um, writing helps me reflect on what took place. And I tend to do two things when I write about things like this. Three, actually. I tend to try and get the factual narrative correct. And then I try and understand how I react to it. And the third thing that I've done before, which I think has really helped me, is I've actually shared the stories. I've read some in public, and I've shared them with other people. So I believe processing is super important. Um, in medicine, which is really kind of scary, we are often having to move on right away. Right after that C-section, I had to keep doing my job that day. It is really easy to um, ignore that or try and put it in a compartment and pretend it never happened because you've got to put your hand on that door again and go back inside. But I will say this, that it is wholly appropriate if you can't do that, that you don't do that. We immediately debriefed, because I'm telling you that OB was done that day. She was not going to do anything else that day. She was distraught. She could not believe that she delivered a dead baby. She continually thought, what did I do wrong? What did I miss? What should have we done? Could I have done it faster? How did that happen? What? She was startled by it. So if you can't continue at the moment, don't. Process in whichever way works for you. But more often than not, I think processing with somebody else and not entirely by yourself is super important. And then recognize you're not the only person doing this. So others have had these same things happen to them, and it's OK to talk about them. Lots of times when we have near misses, especially in what I do, um, it's really hard to talk about something that you might have done wrong, or you missed, or you didn't see coming. Um, but if you can't talk about that, you'll carry it around as a burden, and it will start to act like an anchor on you and start pulling you down. And I'll just leave you with this last thing. I, I was born and raised Catholic. I'm still a member of my church. I went to a Catholic college. I went to a public high school. I went to a public medical school, University of Minnesota. I know you guys beat us. That sucks. Um, but I do believe in the mystery of some of the work we do. Some of what we do is not really explainable. Um, and I'm OK with that. I'm OK with not knowing. And I'm also aware of the fact that sometimes things are going to feel messy, and sometimes things are going to feel unresolved. And I'm OK with that. I'm going to have to accept that that sometimes is the case. And that's hard, especially as med students, because you want to get every question right, and you're expected to know everything. And every time you're doing rounds or something, you're being pimped, you're like, I, there is no room for not having it done perfectly. But that's not the reality. And that's not who we're expecting you guys to be. Yeah. The next questioner wants to know how students can keep their spirits up in the face of the competition they feel from their fellow students for residency slots. And once that hurdle is clear, on those occasions when they are berated or belittled during residency for not having all the answers. God, I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't. But you're, you're pointing out something that's vitally important. I went to the University of Minnesota Medical School. We were a pass-fail school. I don't know if you guys are or not. I think that's brilliant. I mean, once you're in medical school, I've heard this. I don't know if it's true. It's harder to fail out of medical school than it is to get into medical school. I didn't try it, so I can't say that it's true. Um, I had a lot of classmates slow down. I had some that took five years. One even took six years to do it, but they did it. So I think med schools have gotten a little bit better, but you're right. It's going to be test scores. It's going to be residencies. And residencies are super competitive. Um, it's hard to not feel those external pressures to be competitive to try and do the best you can. And as pathetic as this may sound, to try and do better than those that are standing next to you because you know you're getting judged by them. It's hard. It's really, really hard work. But I feel like 
my communication with Carrie, this poor woman, I've emailed her a thousand times, but we've been talking back and forth and she sent me a bunch of the stuff that you guys went through last week and I sat through one of your small sessions today and I'm telling you, your medical school's way ahead of the game. It is trying to take away some of that competitiveness. It's trying to put you guys all in the same boat and get you guys to feel like you're in this together. I think at the end of the day, you're gonna get into the residency you want and you're gonna end up where you want to be. It's really easy for me to say that now. I'm 15 years after that, but it's true. I got into the residency I wanted to get into. But in the United States, it's still an amazing thing. If you get into a residency program in the United States, that's all that matters, you guys. It's still a top-notch education and you can get a job wherever you wanna go. People in my residency, so in my group right now, we have, we're one of those weird anesthesia groups that's recruited from all over the country. So we have a bunch of people that went to Brigham and Women's, some went to Michigan, Stanford, Virginia, Mayo, Minnesota. Uh, Texas. We have this, because of our hospital, we're sort of a nationally known place for both OB, orthopedics, and especially cardiac surgery, but we're a private group. We're like this private hospital that acts like an academic medical center. And we're in the Twin Cities, which has got a long history of surgery. Um, so we're able to bring people from around the country, but it's amazing how we all ended up in the same place. You know, I can tell you some of my colleagues are brilliant. They're a lot smarter than I am. But I do the same job every day as they do, and it's funny how many of them ask me my opinion about something. And I think they ask my opinion about it because I'm not a nervous twit. Like, I'm kind of calm about it, and I'm methodical about how I think about things. So I think retaining that is important, and retaining that perspective. And what's so hard as a med student, I think you live your life day to day, or week to week, or from test to test. But think about it long term, you guys. You're eventually gonna be doing something other than what you're doing right now. It's gonna be incredibly satisfying work. Pursue the things that sing to your heart and you're gonna be all right. You were gonna ask a question. Our student yeah. affairs dean, Dr. Chris Cooper, is here asking if Dr. Mrachik's research has shown that physician suicide is increasing. You know, it's interesting. So there are, yes, it appears as though there are, but. The very first publication we have is from the 1800s about a higher incidence of physician suicide than the general population. So this is not a new phenomenon, you guys. It appears as though it is getting worse as it is in the general public. A lot of people feel that social media and the ramifications around that reality, that distorted reality is driving some of this. Um, interestingly, Physician burnout was growing for a very long time at a pretty steep curve. The last report by the Mayo Clinic looks like it's kind of tipping, or at least hitting a plateau. And I can't tell if that's because there's more awareness and people are reaching out, et cetera. But I struggle with some of it. At my hospital, we've been asked um, to fill out physician burnout surveys, and we fill them out, but there really is never follow-up to it. Or they'll tell you, you know, keep a grateful journal, or work on your resiliency, and you're like, I'm not sure that's exactly what we're talking about here, you guys. I think the problem's a little bit bigger than that. But I don't know if they know what to do. And I think they're scared of it. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but Mount Sinai had two physicians in the course of a year and a half jump off the hospital, and they're still struggling whether or not they want to admit they have a problem. Like, that's profound, right? That's not somebody going home and injecting themselves and no one found them. That's somebody laying on a sidewalk outside a hospital. And what's kind of startling is that physicians tend to kill themselves at or near their hospital. Males tend to use firearms. Females tend to use pills. Anesthesiologists are a 10 time higher rate than anybody else. It's probably also a good time to tell you right now I'm not suicidal. People think it's probably a combination of our job, the stress that we're under, and also our essentially unchecked access to drugs. I can go get drugs out and give them to a patient without having to be cross-referenced like most other people have to do. It's the nature of my job. Part of our training as anesthesia providers, uh, we had to wear a video, uh, we watched a video um, called Wearing Masks. And it was Wearing Masks 1 and Wearing Masks 2. And Wearing Masks 1 was put out about five years before I saw it, and I saw it as a first-year resident. Wearing Masks 2 then came out about seven years after Wearing Masks 1 came out. The wearing masks come from the fact that the people that are doing harmful behaviors, uh, drug deviation, 
et cetera, are the least likely people for you to suspect doing it. Hence, they're wearing a mask. Uh, the ABA and the American Society of Anesthesiologists knows the risk that we're under because of our profession, and so they have us do this as part of our medical training. But the compelling thing in this that 50% of the people that were in wearing masks one were dead in wearing masks two. So once you have deviated narcotics and have used them, your five-year survival rate is 50% anesthesia. So it's, it's startling, and it depends on the profession. I went off on a little deviation from it. We know it's getting worse. We see physician burnout, which we think is highly tied to this, plateauing. But some of the external drivers that we believe are behind physician suicide, financial stress is one of the major ones. And med school debt, and worse yet, undergraduate debt, you guys all know, is climbing sharply. And if you choose a profession that you feel connected to, say family practice, but you don't get paid enough to do that, that financial pressure remains for most of your working career, which is a huge problem. The corollary isn't better. You choose something that you hate, but you're going to get paid well to pay down your financial debt is not a good solution either. Truly, I believe talking about this and the awareness of this and then medical schools as early as med school versus residency or afterwards, putting together concrete programs and resources available, I think is the, probably the biggest and most impactful way that we're going to be able to change this narrative. That was a long answer to a short question. Sorry. So this question was, was really hard to hear, but yeah. I think this student is first commenting that the journey from pre-med to physician is so long and so full of ups and downs and comes with a, such a steady increase in rates of depression. What, she asks, in the absence of a long-term systemic fix would be the short-term solution to these problems. I think oftentimes when I was a med student, I was like, first year sucks, second year is going to be better. Second year sucks, third year is going to be better. The carrot just keeps moving, right? It's true, though. Some beers do get way better. I mean, fourth year was like living in a med spa. Um, way easy. You know you've matched. Kind of things are done. I mean, I know some people that took like the final couple of months off. Um, residency's hard. Internship is, I did uh, an internship at Hennepin County Medical Center. It was a transitional year, so I did one-month rotations and everything. It was one of the best years of my life. Super hard. I learned more than probably any other year in my entire life. It was an incredible journey. They technically call you doctor first day, and you realize, oh my god, that's the last thing I am. And then the day you leave, I think you're smart enough to realize you don't know everything, but you know enough to know that you don't know everything, which is super important. And then you start doing anesthesia residency, and you're like, god, I really better not screw this up, because I only got two minutes to fix it if I do. Um, and then you get through that, and you're thinking, well, when I get done, this is going to be amazing, because then all this crap's going to be behind me. I'm going to be board certified, and I'm going to get paid, like real money. But you see these statistics, and you're like, uh-oh, this isn't going to get better. This won't abate in time. I think it's because physicians, although I think we're one of the more adaptive groups of people in the world, I think the reality is, based on our personalities, we're not as adaptive as we think we are. And I think being aware of it earlier on is going to help you refocus later on. And you're going to realize that the things that matter when you are a doctor are not the things that you probably ma thought mattered now. And I'm not trying to play this sort of, oh, look over here instead of over here. It's not what I'm saying. I've got some colleagues that come to work every day, and they are angry, and they are pissed. And they're like Sisyphus, and they push that rock up the hill, and it rolls back down, and they push it back up the hill. And some days, you just got to jump on and ride the damn rock down the hill. Because you know what? I'm working hard with our group to try and improve Epic. Right now, it's kind of bulky, and it's burdensome. But I will tell you, in two years, we've improved it a lot. And it's making my job quicker and easier. So I'm trying to refocus on the things that I think matter, and I'm taking inventory of those things, and I'm aware of those things. And I think that's going to be the key. I think the key is going to be what you're doing now, but to focus on the things that matter to you. 
I believe this is a calling. If you went in this to make money, you picked the wrong thing. A lot of you are gonna make a lot of good money, but you're gonna sacrifice the best years of your life, and you're probably never gonna catch up to an electrician who didn't have to accrue all the debt that they did, and they've got a pension, et cetera. But if you're here for the right reasons and you get to serve patients, I will tell you there is no greater job in the world. You get to help people at their moment of greatest need, and they are so grateful to you. It's really compelling, and I don't mean it to be like get a God complex or to get your ego pumped up. It's just incredibly beneficial and incredibly um, invigorating to know you're reaching out and helping people when they need your help. You're applying your knowledge, your compassion, your empathy, and your effort to help others. And that's really what matters to me. And I think when I focus on that, and I can keep the focus on that, I don't feel like what I'm doing sucks. I wish I had a better answer to give you. But I think it's, it's good that you guys are going to enter this with your eyes wide open and know that it doesn't always necessarily get better. I think you have to make it better. Okay? I think at the end you don't open up this present and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it was all worth it. But I think you guys are smart enough to realize that's probably not what's going on. I mean, you watch Grey's Anatomy, right? By the way, no one at our hospital is having sex in the closets, as far as I know. And none of that shit's real, by the way. All right, thanks, you guys. I'll be around here after if you want to say something. Thank you. Thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week. If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else fine podcasts are available. Uh, send your questions and comments to theshortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about that instead of whatever junk I come up with. And while your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review to let us know that we're doing right by you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing in Humanities program. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.